Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. America's restaurant landscape is rapidly changing. That pandemic pause gave a lot of people time to rethink, retool, and redo the way the industry runs. On this week's show, We've got some of Louisiana's greatest innovators here to discuss how they're changing the status quo. We begin with Chef Mason Hereford, who reveals innovations he's instituted at Molly's Rise and Shine and Hungry Eyes, the restaurants that have followed his nationally acclaimed Turkey and the Wolf. Then, Chef Serene Mabey discusses his approach to staffing at his fine dining establishment, Dakar Nola. Motivated by years of being overworked and underpaid in kitchens across the world, Serene has set out to do his restaurant a new way. And when it comes to rethinking everything, St. Germain has got it going on. You'll marvel at how their zero-waste philosophy has created a springboard for inspiration at their highly acclaimed New Orleans restaurant. And we travel across the causeway to meet Anna Watkins and Amanda Birdsong, the dynamic duo currently causing a stir right in the middle of downtown Covington at their Cured on Columbia. We're opening the door to exciting new ways to restaurant on this week's Louisiana Eats. Even under the best of circumstances, working in the restaurant industry is not for the faint of heart. Employees are often underpaid and overworked in a high-stress environment. Running the restaurant isn't any easier. Profit margins are usually tight, so everything from food costs to rent to payroll must be perfectly balanced for success. And the competition, especially in a city like New Orleans, is fierce. So how do you get a new restaurant to not just survive, but thrive? To answer that question, we spoke with two young chefs who both worked their way up in the industry and today run successful restaurants of their own in the Crescent City. We begin with Mason Hereford of Turkey and the Wolf. Mason earned a reputation for his creative approach to dining, transforming everyday ingredients into sublime dishes. Case in point, the fried bologna sandwich that launched his eatery to the top of Bon Appetit magazine's list of best restaurants in America in 2017. 
On the heels of that success, Mason opened a playful breakfast spot, Molly's Rise and Shine, in 2019. And his latest offering, Hungry Eyes, features an 80s theme and small plate fine dining. With the emergence of each eatery, Mason has also broken new ground in his approach to management and restaurant culture. Mason, one of the times that you've been here in the studio with me, you said something that captivated my interest and I've spent a lot of time thinking about since. Uh Uh-oh. It has to do with your crew at Turkey and the Wolf. The best. And how they stuck with you. And if there's anything I think that is indicative of troubles in the hospitality industry, it's turnover. Why do you think your crew stuck at Turkey and the Wolf through the pandemic, through the accolades and the lines, through all of the BS, frankly? Yeah, there was a lot of BS. Um, (laughs) That's a good question. Um, The opening team of Turkey and the Wolf was only about seven people, and we had spent a lot of time drinking late nights uh, after our shifts in the kitchen, um, oftentimes on Sunday night at uh, Tracy's. That was one of the places, Uh, sometimes at the Saint till like four. Um, But we had had a storied past and a lot of connections, and we all really cared about each other. Um, and then that team opened the restaurant together. Everyone that opened as a manager, those four or five people are now the managers in our company and are running all, running Turkey and the Wolf, Molly's Rise and Shine, and Hungry Eyes, which is pretty great. I think that maybe, I don't know, the fact that we were all so close when we opened and we sort of, we use that as a springboard to constantly consider how we get along and how we make each other comfortable throughout the day as much as more so than we consider, you know, the technical output of our jobs. I think that probably helped. Now, of course, your folks at Molly's Rise and Shine, two of your old original employees are also in ownership with you, which is something that then you replicated at Hungry Eyes. And So often we see people who are multiplying their restaurants and growing their brand, and it's all about their pockets right? and their ego. Right. Well, everybody has a little bit of an ego. But yeah, Um, uh, yes, we are doing that, and it seems like the only sustainable path forward for our group of people. And I don't want to throw shade at anyone who's doing anything different ways. There's a lot of different ways to run restaurants. Some people are focused on being hyper local or, you know, some people are going so far as their entire business model is employee owned. Like there's, there's a full spectrum of ways to own restaurants. And there's some that are, in my opinion, better than others. And there's some that are more equitable than others. And we just fall somewhere on that spectrum. But to have multiple restaurants and to be considered the chef of all those restaurants or the proprietor um, of all those restaurants that and be running it almost as a solo operation is obviously pretty far-fetched, a pretty far-fetched idea. I would go so far as to say it's impossible. It wasn't long. It was maybe a year in to Molly's Rise and Shine being open that I realized my time, it would be split, and oftentimes it'd be more one place than the other. Molly's sort of quickly took off as a place that could easily be run by the team that was there. 
um, they do it without me. So the idea of it continuing to exist without me, where there's not any profit sharing or sort of incentives to, you know, make it your own from the perspective of, of an owner for other people in the operation just seemed like not the correct way to do things. And then we didn't see a lot of reason to expand beyond Molly's if everyone on our team was happy with where they're at, but everyone's sort of looking for personal growth. Everybody in the management positions are looking for personal growth. And we kind of start with a conversation where we say, would you like to open a restaurant after this? Is that your next move? I clearly think that you're more than capable of doing that. If that is what your trajectory looks like, would you like us to support you in any way? Like help, like what do you want to learn before you open that restaurant? Or would you like to open it with us? Uh, and if we open it together, um, this is a way we could structure it. You, you know, yada, yada, yada. And your experiences coming up through the restaurant industry, which of course we've chronicled here because I imagine you still take something of um, being the bouncer at Fat Harry's with you to every restaurant yeah. you go to. Roadhouse. <laughs> but um, what was it that you learned from personal experience working in other restaurants? What put you in that mindset? The mindset to want to expand share. into my own. Share, oh, share. and expand. Oh, and you know, you just see it so many different ways. You work for a bunch of people. You learn the things you really appreciated or the things that made you feel, you know, less than pleased or small or whatever. And I think there's good things and bad things in every workplace. And regardless of how much we try to sugarcoat it and make it all shiny, happy, wonderful experiences at our place, it's still a stressful place to work. And because we put so much emphasis on taking care of each other on an emotional level, that adds in new issues that didn't exist before, which so don't, that's not a good fit for everybody. Um, like what? But, like, Beast, what are you talking about? Oh, you know, like if you're used to like a really regimented system where like if you do something incorrectly, you're going to get reprimanded um, or it's okay to be sort of, silent or passive aggressive as that being a, a normal way to cope in a more traditional kitchen we try to avoid those types of things and sometimes it ends up we talk about our feelings a little bit more and that can take a little bit of unlearning and unpacking uh sort of like the regular vibe of restaurant but if it's all just like running around chasing stressful situations it could never work for anybody so we we try to do it from the top down 40 hour weeks for everybody we try to as quickly as possible, make every step in the sort of hierarchical chain the least amount of necessary for the day-to-day -day operations as soon as possible. So that every level can be focused more about showing everybody a comfortable time and creativity. That was Chef Mason Hereford of Turkey and the Wolf, Molly's Rise and Shine, and Hungry Eyes. Next, we hear from another young New Orleans chef, Serene Mabey of Dakar Nola. After climbing the industry ladder and years of cultivating a local following through his pop-ups, Serene debuted his brick-and-mortar location on Magazine Street in late 2022. At his modern Senegalese restaurant, 
the first-time restaurateur helms a multi-course tasting menu. This immersive service can last three hours or more and is only offered once a night, so the entire restaurant dines together. Serene is among a growing number of chefs here and around the country who are finding a seasonal tasting menu, as opposed to a la carte, translates to a better dining experience for both guests and his staff. Serene, one of the most refreshing things that I think you're doing at Dakar Nola is you are approaching the restaurant business from a whole different angle. Right. And I think you've got the secret for making your employees happy. Right. How are you operating it differently than other places that you have worked in and have knowledge of? One was that when I worked at many other restaurants, you know, whether it's in the city, whether it's in the outside of the city, you know, I was always curious if I'm going to get my hours, you know. So that was one because I was getting paid nine, starting of seven something. And I think the most I got paid was sixteen fifty, which was high-level Michelin star restaurant, which is kind of sad now because my dishwasher is making 16 you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's not sad. That's kind of <laughs> happy. It depends on which side of the coin you look. Exactly, you know. So first, I really wanted to, to be in my first restaurant. I really wanted to make sure that I am happy doing what I'm doing. And I think that doing a tasting menu is something that makes sense in many ways to me because one is less of a waste. So I know the amount of people that's coming ahead of time. I know how much to prep to prep for. Considering the inflation of food costs, how expensive it is. Mm-hmm. I think tasting menu allow you to really have better control of what it is, not just buying a beautiful fish that came in two days ago, a day ago or this morning. You only sold three of it, which you do with the other two you didn't sell it, and then you're trying to make a special with it, and then you're forcing it. It's like you're doing too much. If I know how many people's coming, this is the beautiful fish I'm preparing, everyone's eating that beautiful fish. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it. One was the food cost. Secondly was to do a restaurant where the server and the guests doesn't feel like they have to be rushed out of the restaurant. You know, oftentimes you go to a restaurant and you have an amazing meal, and, you know, the server just doing their job. Hey, I'm sorry, within the next few minutes, um, this table is reserved for another person for X, Y amount of time. And when people come to Dakar, come to my restaurant, I want them to feel like they're in a place that they never experienced in their life, where they feel the level of hospitality in a way they can't get anywhere else, possibly maybe their mom's house or their grandma's house. I want them to feel that. I want them to know that they're in my home. So they're not being kicked out. The moment they come in, they're able to stay as long as they possibly can. And which is the reason why I did intentionally one seating. So in that way, people that come into the restaurant could enjoy the experience. And also my staff could give good level of service, not having to worry about, I need to hurry up and flip this table. So there's good pay for the staff. For sure. And then there's a reasonable schedule for the staff. Yep. In fact, about last week, one of my staff came to me and said, the most joyful part of my day is coming to work. I mean, it, it hits in many ways that 
such emotional, you know. So even speaking about it right now, and I think a lot of people don't know, as me being a young chef, they don't understand what really goes on. You know, some people think that intentionally it is very one of the most expensive tasting menu, but it is limited seating. Yeah. It is is it and that comes with a lot of reason, you know, on top of that. I'm saving you a trip instead of than going to Senegal and going to West Africa. <laughs> you can learn about it. I mean, if anyway, if anything, I feel like it's a deal for many. It's a delicious, eye-opening experience. You're inspired by that stuff, but it's not like you're reproducing African food. You're just riffing off of what you know with our ingredients here in South Louisiana. Yeah, Local it, is so important I to mean, you. I mean, one other thing I want to discuss that, too, is also is that— I think big restaurants, it's very hard for them to constantly to support something, a local farmer, a small farmer, because they need abundance of it to go through for a seasonal menu. The beauty of my restaurant, the menu get printed daily because one farmer might have these beautiful green beans that I love, but they only have 10 pounds of it, which means the next two or three days, you guys will have these beautiful green beans. A day after that, what else do you have? I have lemon squash, so beat it. And I think that's the beauty of having a small restaurant because not only guests doesn't have to feel rushed, not only the staff feel good coming to work and knowing that they're getting paid. On top of that, I'm able to really source locally pretty much 90% of all the produce that I get that's on the menu from fish from the Gulf, from vegetables that I picked up from the farmer's market that people see me posting on our Instagram constantly so to remind people where these produce are. And in fact, we even put some of the farmers' name into our menu so people are aware who the farmers are and what the food is coming from. It's such a beautiful thing. And now that you've got your own spot, you are generously sharing it with so many people. I am constantly amazed by um, what's going on at your restaurant on Sundays. Tell yes. me about that. So get, bringing a chef from a different city that cooks very different food from what I cook, but also have their own identity of who they really are and their model of business. So they come into our restaurant one Sunday out of the month and all the staff get to work it. We get to have a beautiful family meal, get to hear from that chef and le learn about his journey and who he is and who we are and et cetera. And then have that chef to drive that restaurant for a day. The front of the house is learning. The kitchen is learning. I'm learning. Even that chef is learning. So it's just a culture exchange and it's a, a beautiful thing and everyone's excited about it. And I think that having a business that I have that, that is so small, I'm able to add all these nuance and nimble the business, but most importantly, continue education and learning as the business grow. That was Chef Serene Mabay of Dakar Nola on Magazine Street in New Orleans. Coming up next, we head over to New Orleans Bywater neighborhood to meet a trio of friends who offer their own take on the tasting menu experience at their restaurant, St. Germain. 
Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Hello, I'm Trey Smith. I'm the co-chef of St. Germain. Hey, Drew DeLauder, general manager. I'm Blake Aguilar. I'm the other co-chef of St. Germain. From the moment it opened in 2018, New Orleans Bywater Restaurant St. Germain started gaining acclaim. It received nods from the James Beard Awards, Southern Living, and GQ Magazine. In 2021, Food and Wine Magazine added co-chefs Blake Aguilard and Trey Smith to its lists of best new chefs. And yet, despite all the accolades, St. Germain likes to fly under the radar. Their unassuming establishment, a renovated shotgun house facing St. Claude Avenue, still displays the name of the former restaurant at that location. For us, it works well because we're not trying to get foot traffic at all. It's all reservation only, so you're purposely coming here, so there's no reason to have the signage, really. In a tiny dining room, St. Germain offers a multi-course tasting menu presenting guests with their take on modern French bistro cuisine. That's given Chefs Blake and Trey, along with General Manager Drew DeLauder, an opportunity to try running a restaurant their way after years of working in the business. We join the three of them at St. Germain to hear their story. All three of you come from extraordinary fine dining backgrounds, and you work together in some places, and so... Tell us how this happened. Sure. Uh, do you want to go first, Drew? Yeah. Uh, so me and Trey first met in culinary school. Uh, then we both happened to move to New Orleans at the same time and both happened to work at Stella when we first moved here. Yeah. Like Drew said, he and I knew each other from culinary school and Drew worked at Bayona. And while that was going on, Blake and I started working together at Restaurant August. 
and we worked together there for quite a few years. And then Mike Galata, who was the chef de cuisine of August at the time, was going to start Mofo Restaurant. He was leaving there to do that. And Drew ended up coming for that team and eventually became the first uh, GM there, uh, or at least the first GM after any of the owners were that. And then Blake and I were Mike's two sous chefs there. So we all kind of went through the journey of opening a place together then. Uh, and then from there, uh, Blake moved to California to work at Saison, which was a three Michelin star restaurant there. And I opened uh, Maypop as the chef de cuisine with Mike. And then after that was done, the three of us came back together and decided we wanted to open a place. We've been talking about opening a restaurant forever, but I think the idea of St. Germain literally happened like eight months before we opened. Like where like we kind of all three kind of hit the stride of the concept all at the same time. I remember it as we were at Black Penny talking about it. And, you know, like I just met up with them because they're two of my better friends. Um, and we were just talking about what's going on, like what, like what are they doing? And for me at the time, I was just like, I just don't want to work for anybody else anymore. You know, so I'm kind of just like at a spot of like, well, like what am I going to do? And I'm thinking about like I want to open a place, but I just don't want to open a place by myself. So I bring up the, the offer to them. And then I had said, well, what's like the next step if we do do this, you know? And Trey was like, well, I guess we need to get a realtor. And so I just started calling realtors. We had, I think, maybe $10,000 between the three of us and found the space. And I just remember we just said, like, I think this could be it. And three weeks later, we were, we were rolling. It, it happened that quick. What year did the restaurant finally open? We opened in October 2018. The original idea was that it was going to be more of a bar and the tasting in the dining room was going to be kind of just something on the side to be cool. Uh, and that kind of took over. Uh, that kind of took over. And we had kind of done the building to facilitate that more than the dining room being as nice as it is now and things like that. Yeah, we literally have changed the concept. I think this is the third time. It first was just like bar for a while, like two months. And then it was a la carte. And then it was like a little tasting menu, but but like an option, so kind of both. And then it went to just straight tasting menu, period. Drew, one of the incredible things about you all is that you'd only take, what is it, 30 people a night? Right. Explain the parameters of this restaurant that make things so completely different and what you do to make 10 courses not overwhelming and entertaining part of the evening walk us through that whole experience uh well i mean the experience as a whole you just want it to be enjoyable not just food obviously but you want people to enjoy being in the building because they're in the building for their night <laughs> i mean it's a two and a half hour dinner and you're starting people at the bar now right right right, right. Once you sit in the dining room, if you seat in the dining room immediately, I feel like there's a certain level of seriousness. Whereas if you get started at the bar, you're just kind of here to have fun. And then that can carry over into the dining room. And you all do two seatings a night? Uh, no, we essentially do five seatings. Uh, so we do uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine o'clock. Five, six, seven. So basically, I wouldn't even really call them CDs. So what it's are just, you staggering? How does that work? Right, go? it's just, uh, so it's about two and a half hours. Uh, we do six people essentially per hour. And so by the time people are done at the bar and come into the dining room, then that's when the next round of people at seven o'clock come in, sit at the bar. Then they come into the dining room and it kind of works out perfectly of 
no one's ever rushed, but everybody kind of flows right when you need them to flow. Just the 10 courses, the idea of 10 courses alone, because people go, ooh, 10 courses. I know I've had your 10 course dinner and I have left here and I have been comfortably fed. I didn't like, I wasn't overwhelmed or sick by it. This is a very special art to design a menu in that way. Take us through how you all design these menus and maybe walk me through what an average dining experience might be like. Sure. Uh, I mean, we put a lot of thought into how much food the menu is. You know, it's a challenge because you need to make things small enough but flavorful enough, but at the same time, heat becomes your biggest enemy. So there's a lot of coordination between Blake and I and the other cooks in terms of making sure that things go out as hot as they possibly can. But then we're getting with Drew, you know, and Drew will say, all right, the people aren't eating the hot component first. They seem to gravitate towards this component first, you know, so we'll, we'll basically adjust things, you know, to where it's, We'll put a lot of thought into the way that you have to eat one thing first. So, for example, we have a dish on the menu now that is a little rice ball with a potato butter and a little piece of squid that's been sort of marinated with koji and then quick grilled over wood embers. Well, that tiny piece of squid gets cold very quickly. You know, so it's a coordination in the kitchen to make sure that it comes right off the grill. There's hot potato butter that goes right away and the runners are ready to go. But then we'll put the rice ball on a separate plate. That way when the guests get it, you know, their instructions are to use a little spoon and eat the squid as their first bite while it's still warm. And then they have this rice ball that they can then dip in the butter and eat it. So there's like a, a lot of thought and there's a lot of thought that goes into how big that piece of squid needs to be, how small that ball of rice needs to be. You know, a lot of times people will say, I could have eaten like four of those, you know, and that's kind of the hope with the small dishes is that they want another bite because that gets them ready for the next. So, I mean, at the bar, everything for the most part is either eaten with your hands or eaten with a utensil that already comes on the plate. Mm -hmm. That way it's just much more casual. It's a little quicker and smoother because the front of the house team doesn't have to remove silverware and reset it. You're not rushed to eat anything. You could actually end up having two plates in front of you and, it, and it's fine. So it really is kind of an adventure. This seems to be at least to my way of seeing such a unique and unusual way to run a restaurant. You all just continuously surprised me with the things you were pulling off in that little kitchen. The souffle alone, I was like, but you put the souffle down. It was perfect. It was beautiful. Is this something that you all have puzzled through yourself or was there someone in the world that you were studying with this? So we were, one, we've been doing this for a long time. You know, we all had a lot of training at under great chefs. But I'll say this, almost no technique that is used in this building was ever a technique that was used at a restaurant we were at before because we just keep creating new foods 
keep creating new dishes and things like that to where you and the fact that we're making something that needs to taste right when it's one or two bites as opposed to something that needs to taste right when you have a whole bowl of it. So it's like we're constantly developing these new techniques. Uh, you know, that souffle, it seems like a classic souffle, but in reality, the way that dish was developed is completely from scratch. It's not based off anybody else's souffle. It literally started from us just guessing what the ingredients should be more or less, and then working our way up from there. All of our bread recipes, all of that, it literally starts with just a blind, let's make a souffle, and then keep adjusting it. We'll make it two or 300 times uh, you know, over the course of a period of time. And we're like, all right, needs a little more sugar on the rim. The sugar needs to be a little bit darker. It needs to be a little bit taller. It needs a little more egg, a little more cheese. That's just the type of thing of trial and error. Same thing with the bread. We just keep making it over and over again. And sometimes it will be just the natural progression of things for it to get better. And sometimes it'll be something that a cook said to us. You know, we have these little cornbread uh, pancakes that we do. And that was a recipe that we had developed by just changing, you know, two grams of this, two grams of that over the course of 400 times. But one day a cook said to us, because we used to make them at the beginning of service, like the last possible moment we would we would make it. And he said, you know, they're better when I make them now than they are at the end of the night. And we thought about it and we thought, well, shoot, how could we do this like to order? So we now at the beginning of the night, they batch out all the dry ingredients, batch out the wet ingredients into five kits and we'll make it five times completely fresh throughout the night. And it'll be things like that that elevate something to a higher level based off us doing what we can in such a small place. We try really hard, all three of us, to think logically with our own instincts. I think a lot of times people get, you know, a certain way beaten to their head. And I think we're just like, well, why is that the case? Let's just do it different. Lord, it's very unusual, I believe, to have two chefs get the best chef award. Let's talk about that. You know, it's we've been very blessed. We've been very blessed, but at the same time, it's, I think, the surprise of it that makes it mean so much to the staff and to us. You know, in the beginning, I think people came to work here and they're like, these guys seem great. You know, these two chefs and this GM seem like they really care and they know what they're doing, but I don't know if people are going to notice this place. And we just kept saying to people, you know, it's like, one, if every guest leaves happy, then we will be all right as a business. And two, if every guest leaves happy, then some of those guests are going to be people that are probably going to have, you know, a bigger reach than others in terms of bringing new guests in. And, you know, fortunately for us, some of those people have been magazine editors or, you know, James Beard judges and things like that. And, you know, but happy customers are a big deal. What I'm most proud of is the fact that I think this is a way better restaurant than it was when we got that award. And that's not always the case. Yeah. You know, some people will be at their peak and then kind of go into cruise control, you know, and we've we have not stopped trying to get better, you know, and don't get me wrong. I think we're all proud of what we were doing back then. But but now it's like night and day what we're doing compared to then because we just kept getting better, at least trying to get better. Thank you all so much. The only thing better than sitting here 
with you all would be dining here. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Goodbye. That was Trey Smith, Blake Aguilard, and Drew DeLauder, the trio behind St. Germain, a fine dining restaurant in New Orleans Bywater. do with that parmesan cheese rind besides throw it out stay tuned and we'll explore lessons learned at saint germain when we come right back Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What can you do with that Parmesan cheese rind besides throw it out? At St. Germain, the crew works hard to ensure they create as close to zero waste as possible. A recent dinner there began with a tiny cup of Parmesan broth. What could this possibly be, I wondered. Despite all the amazing flavors that followed during the 10-course tasting menu, it was that Parmesan broth that really stayed on my mind. It seems that instead of tossing out those rinds, chefs Blake and Trey simmer them in water, creating a highly concentrated taste that seems almost impossible. The deep, rich flavor of finely aged Parmesan rang through with a clarity I'd never experienced before. So don't ever throw those cheese rinds out again. There's a lot of magic left in them that doesn't belong in the garbage. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. 
on Columbia Street in the heart of downtown Covington, you'll find Cured on Columbia, a culinary venture that doesn't fall neatly into a traditional category. It's part coffee house and part pub, with a changing menu that includes everything from sandwiches and soups to cheese and charcuterie boards. It's perhaps better defined by its vibe. Cured on Columbia is a sunny, lively space that embraces guests as they are and gives them a place to kick up their heels and hang out, anytime from morning coffee to cocktails after work. When Louisiana Eats arrived there one weekday afternoon, the place was bustling with Covingtonians. To avoid the busy lunchtime crowd, we asked Cured on Columbia's co-owners to join us in their backyard. A wonderful spot for alfresco anything. I'm Amanda Birdsong and I'm chef and co-owner of Cured on Columbia. And I'm Anna Watkins and I am the other owner partner of Cured on Columbia. Amanda and Anna's vision for Cured on Columbia has its roots in the couple's history. Anna spoke first. Yeah, so we are from the Baton Rouge area. That's where we met. We've been together 14 years. Um, we've always had a love and passion, I guess, for the same in, in the food industry. We just, we share the passion for food and, and wine and, you know, dining out and just the service industry in general. I've always had a passion for cooking. Anna's always had um, more of a passion for service and, you know, the wine side and cocktail side of everything. and talking about it and sharing, you know, our visions and goals together, we kind of figured out that we wanted to do this together. You know, not only life together, but also, you know, our passion together. We said 50-50 and let's just do this. One of the most interesting things about your business is you sure do keep long hours here <laughs> and you transform during the day. I mean, you right. start off as a coffee shop and then you end up as a wine bar date night yeah. sort of place. Right. Take us through a day here at Cured on Columbia and how it goes. I think that's the biggest part of what we wanted. You know, we dine out a lot and we've always had that passion to go different places and look at different concepts. And we have a love for the fine dining and, and the casual and every walks of it, you know. But I think the cool part is that we really wanted to offer a space that we can transform, we can be multiple things, and it's really about what the guest wants. So it, it's, it's all about what they are wanting that day, whether you wanna come in in your gym clothes and have a coffee, or if you wanna come back and have a lunch day, casual or nice, and then we transform with candles lit and into a like lounge out atmosphere, providing wine and, and different options, craft-made cocktails, and things that people wouldn't expect when they think coffee shops. So we have a lot of different labels. We have a lot of different I guess just branding and all um, but a day here I guess we, it could start with coffee coffee and a lox toast yeah. and then you know the let's say Marcy comes in and she's she's meeting her girlfriends for some coffee on a Friday morning and you know they they have their brunch and then brunch leads into let's try a lavender mimosa and so we we're going into, you know, cocktails in the afternoon and then, you know, they go pick their kids up and then they come back and then it's dinner with the kids and the family and, you know, they're walking and everything's walking distance and it's, you know, we're a place where people can come 
have a glass of wine, have a drink, go to dinner across at Siler Bar, come back, have dessert with us or maybe, you know, a restaurant behind us. But it's it's a place that never stops, really. I mean, it, <laughs> we're evolving into an, an, another party that's coming in. Now, I know one of the things you all like to do here are have special dinner events. Oh, yeah. Tell me, you know, d roll, roll out one of your special wine dinner evenings and tell me what it's like. Well, when we first started this whole just idea, we used to host little mini dinner parties in our home with friends and different people that would want to come in and just have a different walk on a on a night of dinner, you know, really. And so it's an opportunity for us to get really creative, especially Amanda on the on the chef side, but as well as just our crew to have just a, a twist to what they do every day to kind of offer this upscale but still relaxed wine dinner. And we created this, we want to call it, we've named it the Dying to be Different series. We just came up with this name and thought it was quirky and fun. Dining um, to be different? Yes. <laughs> and so we have different ideas, you know, of, you know, where to host it, how to have it, you know, in our courtyard or inside. It can be a little upscale or we've also done it where it's like themed for Halloween and Beetlejuice or where everyone dresses up and we create like a whole different environment. We really do transform it. We, we decorate it different. We have different vibe going on. Um, all our employees are acting different as far as the full service, the full wine dinner. It's just a kind of a different show for everyone. And I think that's the fun part about it because we all really enjoy it because it's such, such a different day for us. And just the inquiries that we have, and it's very popular. And before we can even advertise it, it's people are like, let me know the next one, we're coming. Because it is so different, and we don't offer the plates that we normally do at, at wine dinners. And I think that's the fun part about it, you know, is really, really transforming the space. We've developed a family, you know, down here, and people know us by name, and we come into work, and, you know, I might be having kind of a crummy morning, but people just lift me up all day. And, you know, that's, that's a big part of us is you know people make this their office throughout the day and it, it's nice to work side by side with people even though we're all going in different directions. I will say this community has really embraced us and loved us and I think it all is just about loving people and like being your authentic self and we we wanted to create a space for that of everyone's welcome no matter who you are whatever you represent, whoever you love, whoever you want to be, like come to Cured, you're welcome here. We're going to give you a safe space for that. And I think just by pr providing just a true, genuine self, I mean, I guess representation of who we are, people see that. How can you not? We're good people. Yeah. We love everyone. We care about who you are. We care about your family, your kids, and I, especially our employees. You know, that's what we wanted to provide for them. You know, we don't have uniforms and it's not having to be one way. It's be you. Be who you are, be creative. We want our people to be creative and create things and create different menu items and feel like they can just be themselves and not feel judged in our space. And I think that's just really what we wanted to purvey to the community. We're good people and, and I think if you're good people and you're good to other people, I think good is in, re in return. I mean, isn't that the secret to life? <laughs> <laughs> that was Amanda Birdsong and Anna Watkins co-owners of Cured on Columbia in downtown Covington.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>